Hey, good morning, Renew Church. Thanks so much for joining us this Sunday. And even though we're far away from each other, I'm really grateful that we get to sing and worship and think about God's word. Especially this morning, we will pause twice uh, to think about Ahmad and the situation that happened in Georgia, the travesty of it. And I think the first, in this first moment, I'd like us just to grieve a son, a man, um, who, who was gunned down. And, and I think we can easily run to the conflict or start at the conflict, but w- the common ground I think all of us had is this shouldn't have happened to anyone. And as a, as a parent, uh, I just think it's every parent's uh, every nightmare to think about your son going on a run and this dying like this. And so I would love to just lead us in a prayer this morning as we think about him and um, spend some time just lamenting, um, feeling the pain of, of his mother, feeling the pain of, of those who loved him. God, we just think about Ahmad this morning, and we allow ourselves to grieve and to be broken over this horrific situation, the injustice, the, the dragging of feet until a video and public outrage. Um, yeah, we just ask that you would um, use the anger that is righteous to bring justice and, and allow peace to also be had by your gospel and by your people. Um, we don't know how to bring the two together, but we ask for both. And um, God, we just really pray that as a community, you would teach us how to enter into these conversations that are so difficult, but so important. Um, help us, Lord, to advocate well, uh, to think clearly, and to look to you for hope and guidance. We ask for all these things, um, and we pray that today, this week, this month, um, Ahmad wouldn't uh, slip our minds, but it would be... Um, bigger than him, that we would take a step back and look at America, look at our own prejudices, um, look at your kingdom and desire, Lord, uh, for something better for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for leading again um, our worship time. And um, we want to pause a second time to think about Ahmad. And, you know, for me, I just see how hard it's been in the entirety of my life to walk into racial conversations. Some of it just feels oftentimes like a black and white conversation, um, Hispanic conversation. And as an Asian American, I'm always kind of peering through the side window, watching people talk and not feeling invited in, not wanting to be invited in, kind of like the awkward kid. And then as I've been thinking about this over the last uh, year or so with some crew staffers like Tiki and Jonathan Whitmore have challenged me um, in a lot of ways, went to Epic Conference or Crew Conference, you know, I was kind of gearing up Renew to enter into this conversation. And then COVID-19 hit and a lot of us are Asian American. And I felt like we just got dragged in very quickly. And, and there were aspects of what was going on in um, discrimination and, and hate speech that made me realize 
what it meant to feel uh, directly involved in kind of being the person uh, hurt by those things. Because I realized, like, when, when someone attacks a person's ethnicity, you know, it's just like, it felt like it was me. It is me, right? Like, and, and when someone's getting attacked simply on their race, you just, you know that that could have been you if you were in that same situation. Um, the Asian family who was stabbed in Texas, it, if, I, if my family was there, why, would it, why wouldn't it be Liam and Nina and myself? Or I think about someone who went jogging that we know of um, who, was, who was assaulted. And if my sister ran that same route, why wouldn't it be her? It's just really easy to swap us out. And so I think when, when Ahmad's thing <clears throat> murder happened, I started getting it more. I started getting why it felt deeply personal to every uh, black person that it just it could have just been if it was just a black man being killed for running, why wasn't it all these black men that I love running that same route? And and then I think about maybe my voice in this, um, primarily as a pastor, primarily through scripture and theology. And so that's that's the platform I have to offer. And I look back at scripture and I see the Tower of Babel happening because people were rebelling against God, trying to usurp God through this tower, and God mixed up all their languages so they couldn't communicate. And and sin was what separated us, one nationality and culture from, from another. And then we look at Jesus' great commission, how he's regathering the nations as he's telling his disciples to make disciples of every nation. And then at Pentecost, this happens in a really powerful way where Peter gets up to preach in front of many nations and many tongues, and they all hear the gospel in their own tongue. And this is remarkable in terms of the gospel going across many nations. But in another way, it's gathering all the nations in in the reversal of Babel, right? In Babel, the the languages were, were mixed up. But in Pentecost, the language was brought back together again. God is regathering the nations under his kingdom. Um, and then I, lastly, I think about Jesus talking to his mother and brothers as they are being sent to bring him home and kind of asking him to leave ministry. And then he says, who are my mother and brothers? Those who do the will of the father. And in many ways, he's putting aside his family of origin and you can, argue, you can argue and say he's making his ethnicity secondary to his primary belonging, which is the family of God. When we think about it that way, we're not advocating whether you're black or white or Latino or Asian. Uh, we're not advocating for... Ahmad primarily as a black man, even though that's a deep part of this conversation. We're advocating for him in a more intimate way as a part of um, God's family. You know, we look at all ethnicities and we say that, but first, you're my brother and you're my sister. And that's always going to be more intimate and more personal um, and even a deeper priority 
than these ethnic divides. And then we look at God's kingdom and him being king, and we're always standing against injustice and sin. We're always standing against hate and revenge. And when, when I look at the situation, I'm, I'm saying, like, how can we see this first as a gospel versus sin issue? How can we see this first, first as a kingdom of God versus kingdom of darkness issue? Because, because when we defeat sin with the gospel, we defeat racism, right? When we defeat sin with the gospel and we see God's vision of family, we defeat prejudice and injustice. And, and I think that's my greatest contribution to this conversation. I, I know I'm new to it. I'm going to have missteps. I'm going to misspeak. I'm not going to be as clear as I want to be or as people deserve. But in, as we enter into this as a church, um, some of us are Asian American. And I think, I think we can just opt out and say, but it's a black man and a white, uh, two white men. But when we look at God's kingdom and this paradigm, we do not get to opt out because it's about family. It's about the gospel and it's about his kingdom. And, and, and he's our brother. Um, more, you know, a, a, a Christian black man is more my brother than an Asian American or a Chinese person would be if he's not my brother in Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. And do we own um, his cause like that? So, again, we're just starting a conversation. There's so many dimensions. It's multifaceted. But I want to start there. And, again, I want to lead our community in prayer as we um, pray for him and his family. We're celebrating Mother's Day, but his mom um, lost her son. You know, like... I hope that all of the moms listening to this, uh, we can grieve with, with her to, to think about his family in that way. Father, we again, um, yeah, we lift up Ahmad, we lift up his mom, we lift up his family, and we bring them closer. Um, and in some ways, we bring them closer than um, a lot of racial conversations. They're, they need to happen. Um, but, but, but I think family is closer than that. And so we just kind of see him as, um, our brother who was lost in this, in this terrible incident. And, and if we're white, we see him as our brother who was lost in this terrible, terrible, um, injustice. And we fight for those things, Lord, because your kingdom is about those things. Because your family is about those things, God. We grieve with him. We desire to advocate. We desire to look into the system and, and see what's wrong, what happened. Why did it take so long? If there wasn't a tape, would, would any of this come out? And we think about all the men who've lost their lives where there wasn't a tape. Lord, we, we, we look into those things, but we look into it. We are angry about it. Uh, we advocate for it. Not, not for it in and of itself, but because we are family and because of the gospel, we get to be one team in, in one voice with many um, perspectives asking for justice and truth 
asking for your kingdom to push into the darkness of what happened, Lord. We pray for that. And I, I ask for our church, Lord, um, at Renew, to that we would continue to walk into these things. But I think about our family small group, you know, with um, a black and white brother and me and Dave and, and how we were able to have really uh, uh, vulnerable and tender conversations um, in relationship and in love and trust for each other. And I think that's, again, our greatest con- contribution that as a community, we, would, we, would you continue to grow our heart for a multi-ethnic expression of your family and a place where these conversations can happen and people are heard and we're okay with them being um, kind of journeying in their own way towards, your, towards different perspectives and we can pray and advocate Lord, uh, for your kingdom and your gospel. We love you. Um, God, we're so grateful for this family and teach us. Uh, We're going to make mistakes. We're going to say things that are offensive or that uh, we take back later. And I just ask for a tremendous amount of grace and forgiveness uh, as we journey um, in this really difficult conversation and as we learn to advocate uh, first for your kingdom and for your gospel. And then for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, a few announcements um, before Pastor Dave comes up and and shares God's word with us. We do have devotionals uh, twice a day. I'd love to meet you there. Uh, I'm there every every day, and it's been cool to kind of hear people's thoughts and learn from them from our community, give my own. And we've I've had some offline conversations happen out of that as I've got, you know, uh, maybe concerned about what someone shared, something they're wrestling with, or someone else reached out to me for more perspective. And it's just been a really sweet time. I want to invite all of you guys into that. Even if you're just checking us out, you're invited. All you have to do is fill out the Google form uh, right on the description page. And also we have small groups going on uh, we, every single week, uh, gathering in groups on Sundays, but also meeting throughout the week to talk about the passage. All right, as we go into um, this time, we do have uh, a question for all of us who are in watch party small groups to talk through for about three minutes. What's the truth that you've learned from COVID-19? I think God's kind of doing a lot of different things in our heart, unmasking things that we've uh, maybe relied on. And what's, what has he taught you in this season? We'll take a three-minute break. Pastor Dave will come up. He's actually going to be preaching for the next three weeks. I'll actually I'll be on a two-week vacation where I don't get to do anything fun, but I do get to press into the Lord, which is super fun, and um, excited about that, be with my family. So you won't see me for two, two weeks, but you get to have Pastor Dave preach to you, which is uh, quite – he's one of my favorite preachers, like, anywhere. So I'm really excited about that. Um, yeah, so go ahead, break off into your small groups. And if you don't have a small group, feel free to participate uh, just through commenting on our Facebook live feed. Feed. All right, we'll be back in a few minutes. Hi, good morning, everyone. Uh, let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 26. We'll be continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew. And um, I'm happy to say that we're almost finished, which is really cool. It's a big achievement. Uh, So Matthew chapter 26, and here Jesus and his disciples are on the Mount of Olives. And this is 
This place was named for the numerous olive groves that covered the slopes of the mountain. Our Lord will enter a place that he had frequented many times with his disciples, and that is the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, it's interesting that the name Gethsemane is the Aramaic word for oil press. Now, you might say, what is an oil press? Well, it was a device that was used to crush and squeeze olives to produce olive oil. Now, olive oil was extremely important as a commodity in the first century economy. And because of this, it was very precious throughout the whole of the ancient world. Now, Gethsemane is an absolutely fitting name for where our Lord and his disciples are. Because it is in this place that Jesus and his disciples are pressed, hard-pressed. There's a pressure, a squeeze, if you will, of all kinds of issues. The pressure of loneliness, the pressure of duty, the pressure of pain, the pressure of fear, the pressure of betrayal, the pressure of abandonment, the pressure of adversity. And I believe studying this passage on the oil press will produce some significant spiritual truths that I believe will be extremely precious to us as well. The title of my message this morning is Lessons from Gethsemane, Spiritual Lessons from Being Pressed, Lessons We Learn as Disciples When We're Squeezed. And Gethsemane actually produces two outcomes. If you're taking notes, it produces number one, failure. And we see that in the life of the disciples. And then number two, it produces faithfulness. And we'll see that exemplified in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, when we think about Gethsemane, it's a very important reality to all of us because every one of us faces Gethsemanes in life. Those difficult situations, those trials that are unplanned, those circumstances that are extremely heavy to us, that will shake us and sift us, and sometimes will even rock our worlds. Gethsemane will either break you down and make you bitter, or it will build you up and it will make you better. And so we're going to look at the failing and the faithfulness of Gethsemane. So the first lesson, if you're taking notes, we want to learn is the idea of failure. So failure at Gethsemane, that's my first point. Let's look at the anatomy of failure. And what I mean by anatomy is actually separating the parts so that we can get a detailed examination of it. We want to look at how the Bible addresses failure as disciples. And so there's two character traits that a Christian exhibits when he or she fails. The first is the character trait of self-confidence. The character trait of self-confidence. Now, the definition of self-confidence is trusting in oneself in one's power and abilities. So let's look in verse 30. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, let's stop right there. Uh, Pastor Wilson did a great job last week giving you the background of where we are. But let me just reiterate that this was Passover. It was the highest feast day on the Jewish calendar. And so what they would do is Jews from all around the world would come and descend upon Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And they would celebrate God's deliverance of Israel. And part of that would be that they would sing psalms. They would sing hymns of worship to God. They would recount God's mighty acts in saving Israel from the Egyptians. So they would recount, you know, the plagues and the opening of the Red Sea. 
They would uh, account for or recount uh, the wilderness wanderings and how God took care of them. And lastly, they would feast on great food. It would be, for the average Jew, the best food that they eat all year. So they look forward to it. Now, on top of that, for the disciples, Jesus gives them even more. Because it's there that our Lord washes their feet. Imagine the intimacy of this. The master serves the disciples. And not only is that, but he gives more intimacy where he administers the Lord's Supper. We talked about that last week. And how Jesus uh, shares with them the, uh, the ordinances of the new covenant. And not only that, but we look in John's gospel in chapter 14 and 16, where he promises them the Holy Spirit. And in John 17, he prays guidance and protection for them. And we call it the high priestly prayer, but Jesus prays that for his disciples. Imagine how encouraged, how inspired they must have felt that particular night. How loved they must have felt. They were on a spiritual high. They were on an ecstatic experience. Now, let me ask you, have you ever felt that way in your life? The equivalent of that would probably be the best retreat that you'd ever been to, whether it's a church retreat or a parachurch retreat. Uh, have you ever been to a treat, retreat where everything was right on perfect? I mean, the worship, you felt like you were touching heaven. It was so beautiful. It was so amazing. There was just such an experience of worship. The messages were just right on point, convicting your heart, encouraging you, helping you in your uh, Christian life of where you were right then and there. And the, the programs were so moving, right? The intimacy was so great uh, as far as community that you were so blessed that at the end of it, you were so, so fired up to live for God that you had to hug everybody at the retreat, that you had to promise them that you'd stay in touch with them, that you cried rivers uh, at the retreat. And in the end, you wanted to surrender your whole life to the Lord. You were so pumped up as you left the retreat. This is exactly where the disciples were. They were coming back from an upper room retreat where Jesus had led them. And now, full of fire, full of, full of uh, the Holy Spirit, they're, they're, they're going out to the Mount of Olives. And that is why it's so crazy what happens next. Let's look in verse 31. Then Jesus told them, this very night, you all will fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Imagine hearing that right after this retreat. And here Jesus says the truth will absolutely happen. And the disciples that he loved, that he uh, supported, that he nurtured, would desert him and run away, leaving him alone to face his trial and to face the cross. And Jesus knows this because Zechariah 13 verse 7 here, the prophet Zechariah predicted that it would happen. It's biblical confirmation. Now, imagine the scene. How would the disciples respond to this? Well, let's look in verse 33. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Peter's response, if you're taking notes, is one of self-confidence, right? Peter is so overconfident in himself that he denies the biblical truth of Zechariah 13.7. It's crazy when you see that Peter actually ignores Jesus' words and Old Testament prophecy. It's like he's saying, Jesus, I appreciate that you're quoting the truth of Scripture, but that's not going to be me. Jesus, what you quoted as prophetic truth from God doesn't apply to me. You're wrong. And you see, when we're self-confident, we tend to ignore biblical authority in our lives. We tend to hold it loosely. 
And we base all of uh, our truth on our feelings and on our emotions. You know, when I was a campus pastor starting out for the first time in ministry, I remember the first sin issue I had to address was with uh, our student uh, leaders, a guy and a girl, a girlfriend and boyfriend, that were having uh, improper physical relations with one another. And I remember I had to call them into my office, and I had to actually show them from the Word of God many, many passages, clear truth from the Word of God about what they were doing and how they had to stop. It was wrong. And I was surprised. I mean, this was you know, early on in my ministry, so I was surprised that they didn't repent. As a matter of fact, they got really upset with me. And you know what they said to me? I know what the Bible says, but that doesn't apply to us. We're in love. We're going to get married in the near future, and God understands our hearts. And so even what you say in the Bible, it doesn't apply to us. There was no repentance because of self-confidence. See, when you're trusting in your talents and your emotions and your ideas and your philosophy, then you aren't relying on the word of God, and we need to take heed lest we fall. Verse 33, even if all fall away on account of you, I will not. This phrase is packed with meaning. Peter overestimates his spirituality over the other disciples. He's being judgmental. Think about this. He's saying, don't get me wrong, Jesus. These disciples, they're good guys, but let's face it. They've got some issues. And if you squeeze them enough, I could see them failing. I mean, James and John, they're they're not called sons of thunder for nothing, right? They've got pride issues. They're competitive. And so, yeah, I could see them falling. Matthew, uh, he was a tax collector. I mean, he's a good guy, but he's got a bad past. You can't always trust him. Thomas is prone to doubt. We all know that. And if he's squeezed, he may fail at some point. Nathaniel, oh, man, he's so pessimistic. He's so passive. He's not like me. He's not that active rock that you called me. I'm your leader, Jesus. You can count on me. Have you ever said, it may happen to them, but it will never happen to me? Other marriages may fail, but not mine. I'm different. They may have a problem with addictions, drugs, sex, power, but I'm not wired that way. I'm stronger than that. You see, self-confidence can blind you to weaknesses. Let's look in verse 34. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Here, Peter tell, or Jesus tells Peter, I see the weakness of self-confidence in your life, and the rooster will call you on it. Let's look in verse 35. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Peter overestimates his own spirituality, and he underestimates the weakness of his flesh. What happened to this promise after the upper room high faded? What happened after Gethsemane squeezed and pressed his promise? Let's look at the digression of his failure. Uh, Verse 69, would you look at it? It says, now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before all of them. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. So the first denial, it's a little ambiguous, right? He denies uh, what they are even talking about. He's trying to get out of harm's way. Let's continue, verse 71. Then he went out of the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth, and he denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. So the second denial 
more serious. He puts an oath on it. He swears that he doesn't know this Jesus they're referring to. Oaths are serious, right? Let's look in verse 73. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. The third denial, you see the digression? The third denial is even more serious. The pressure is squeezing in. The crowd is intent on pinning him because he has a Galilean accent. And it's interesting that he invokes curses on himself. Now, this doesn't mean he was cussing or using filthy speech. The Bible uses that word invoking curses on oneself was actually a call to witness. It was an invitation for God to witness what is being said, that it is true, and to punish the person if they're lying. So what Peter was saying is, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I'm lying that I don't know the man. So in a Jewish culture, this was an extremely serious sin. What had Peter come to? One moment, I will die with you. The next moment, curse me if I even know you. The passage is a reminder that we are utterly weak in and of ourselves. In ourself, we're highly susceptible to failing. And the truth is, we don't have spirituality in and of ourselves. It is Christ in us. It's his spirituality imputed to our account. It's imparted to us that we work with, that we grow in. That's the gospel, that Jesus' righteousness has come within us. And without Jesus, we don't have spirituality. John 15 says it this way. Jesus says, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. And neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See, when Gethsemane comes and the pressure begins to squeeze, do you rely on yourself, your ways, your wisdom, your ingenuity, your intelligence? If you are doing that, take heed lest you fall. The failure of self-confidence is the failure to face your weaknesses, the fact that we are all broken. And the failure teaches us to remain in Christ. He's the vine. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. The first character trait is failure. Uh, A failure is self-confidence. The second character trait is one of self-centeredness. Now, that definition is being concerned primarily with one's own needs, one's own desires, and one's own interests. Let's look in verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Gethsemane means oil press. And here we see our Lord Jesus is being pressed emotionally and spiritually. He is squeezed with the pressure of his responsibility. He's crushed with the expectations that he will put on the sin of all of humanity. And here we see that Jesus longs for his friends to support him with prayer in this time of need. Now let's look in verse 40 and see what happens. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? 
He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is possible for this cup to be taken, unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and he went away once more and he prayed the third time saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. These disciples, instead of supporting and praying for Jesus at his time of greatest need, we see they're sleeping. Jesus tries three times to wake them to prayer, but three times they fall back to sleep. The disciples are disobedient. I want you to catch that. The disciples are disobedient. All throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been readying the disciples for this day. He tells them, be on your guard. Be alert. Watch and pray. Keep watch. Be ready and pray. He's been telling them this. Why are they so disobedient? Is it because they don't love Jesus? No, that's not it. Is it because they're rebellious? No, that's not it either. Is it because they don't care about his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven? No, that's not true either. Then why are they sleeping? Look in uh, verse 41. It gives the answer. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. The spirit is willing. They want to follow Jesus in this, <clears throat> but the body, <clears throat> excuse me, is weak. Think of that church retreat. When you get back home, you're on fire for God. The spirit indeed is willing. You have a desire to submit to the Holy Spirit at work in your life. You want to participate in prayer and communicate with God on a daily basis. You want to fulfill the great commission. You are emotionally on fire. You're sold out for God. And then a couple days later, right, a couple weeks later, you stop doing that. You fail to keep that up. You go back to living a self-centered life, focusing primarily on your desires, your needs, and your interests. What happened? Why is that? Is it because you don't love Jesus? I don't believe that's true. Is it because you're rebellious and you're a bad person? I don't think that's true either. Is it because you don't care about the kingdom of God? No, I don't think that's true. You know why you stop and you fail? It's because of lack of discipline. It's because your body is weak. And I believe the number one reason why Christians fall and fail in the Christian life is because they lack discipline. Because the condition of your body will affect how you relate to God. It will, you will experience your spiritual life a certain way if your body is not ready for it. Because the greatest myth is that the physical and the spiritual are separate, right? The biggest mistake that we make is to separate the physical from the spiritual in our Christian lives. As a matter of fact, that's one of the oldest heresies in church history, that the spiritual is one and the physical is another and they don't meet. But you know, the Bible tells us something different. The physical is closely connected to the spiritual. What you see with your physical eyes will affect you spiritually. What you take into your body will affect spiritual things. How you habitually practice things will uh, spiritually transform you. Because your body, the Bible says, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. See that connection, body and spirit? You can't disconnect the two. 
And if your body is weak, it will affect your spirit even if it is willing. You know, uh, I had the privilege early on in my ministry life to start two parachurch organizations. Uh, One of them was for any student who was on campus. And that one, by God's grace, just grew. It grew from five people to 100 people in a year. And the next year, it nearly doubled. I mean, it was just an amazing show of uh, what God was doing. The other ministry wasn't for every student. It was actually for student athletes, for divers and swimmers and runners. We had baseball players and soccer players uh, in that particular parachurch ministry. And that grew actually slowly, but it grew steadily. And what I noticed in the couple years that I was uh, taking care of this was I noticed that all of our outstanding leaders were coming out of the athlete parachurch ministry. All of our teachers and all of our church leaders, all of the people that you could count on were coming out of this particular group of people. And so I asked myself, why? Why was this happening? I mean, the other group was so much bigger. We had so much excitement with that group, but why is it that the best leaders were coming from there? Are athletes just better people than everyone else? And you know what I came to realize? That athletes on scholarships had to train themselves to be disciplined. They disciplined themselves when they were young. And so when they committed to Jesus, they had a disciplined mindset and a lifestyle that was already there. And athletes, they weren't better people than anybody else, but they were just already disciplined when they came to following Jesus. Now, that was interesting. You see, to a modern Christian, discipline is unpopular. It even sounds legalistic to them. What we need are exciting retreats and emotional community. We need experiential programs, ecstatic manifestations. That's what we need. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, says it this way. And by the way, if you've ever read anything from C.S. Lewis, it's just gold. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Modern man in his technology has something that unites him with magic while separating him from the wisdom of the ages. The question of the wise man ages ago was, how do I conform my soul to reality? And the answer was discipline. For the modern man, the question has been changed to, how do I reconstruct reality to satisfy my passions? And the answer is a technique or technology. This is profound. Let me, let me read that again. Modern man in his technology has something that unites him with magic while separating him from the wisdom of the ages. The question of the wise man ages ago was, how do I conform my soul to reality? And the answer was discipline. For the modern man, the question has been changed to, how do I reconstruct reality to satisfy my passions? And the answer is a technique or technology. Do you see what he's getting to? Modern Christianity seeks emotional, experiential, ecstatic magic. They are reconstructing reality to satisfy their passions. That technique that produces spirit-willing disciples, but at the same time weak-willed, superficial, shallow ones. You see, enthusiasm without discipline produces immaturity where enthusiasm coupled with discipline produces a solid soldier. The Bible has always taught spiritual discipline. You see, discipline is, by its definition, self-denying. It flies counter to self-centeredness. It says no to that addiction. It says no to that distraction. It says no to any entanglements. 
and it bids us to train and exercise even when we don't want to. Discipline is one of the most spiritual things that you can do. And if we want to be effective, we must be disciplined. So let me ask you, how is your prayer life? Learning to spend time communicating with God. How's your study? Setting aside time to really pour into the word of God and to hear from him. How is that discipline of giving where you're training yourself to share your treasures instead of selfishly hoarding it? How are you in your serving? And that truly is a discipline. Serving from your talents, not for yourself, but to help others in the body of Christ and also in our community. You see, when we enter our Gethsemanes, there will be times when we're pressed, when we're overwhelmed by challenges and difficulties. And if we're not spiritually disciplined, we're going to fail to be effective disciples of Jesus Christ. And you know what's beautiful? This COVID-19 quarantine for me has been a way that I have learned to discipline myself in silence and solitude. Just going through the emotionally healthy spirituality, we've been going at it even before quarantine, but it's almost like God saying, okay, now I want you to practice it, right? You're going, you're going through it, you're learning about it, but now do it every morning. Do it with uh, others. Uh, learn to do it by yourselves. And it's been a Awesome, and, and that's a plug for you guys. If, if you're not involved in uh, going through that, it's a wonderful, wonderful tool for us to be disciplined. See, notice the contrast between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is praying into the night and into the early morning hours of the day on which he is about to die, while the disciples who are supposed to support him are sleeping. How do you think Jesus was able to pray at such a confusing and desperate time? Because the discipline of his life was to get up early in the morning and to pray extended amounts of time, silence, solitude, and communion. So that even when Gethsemane that, uh, was more intense than at any other time in Jesus' life, he sustains himself because of the discipline of prayer. You see, Jesus, for Jesus, this wasn't an unusual thing, something you do at special or unique times. This was the normal thing that he habitually practiced. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, train yourself up to be godly. 1 Corinthians 9, 27 says, I discipline my body, I make it my servant. The Bible says that we discipline the physical for the spiritual. Now, we've seen the disciples' failure at Gethsemane. Now I want us to turn our attention to Christ's faithfulness at Gethsemane. Let's look at Jesus and his faithfulness. In verse 37, and Jesus took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So what caused Jesus distress and dread? Can I share with you? It was not because of his death. Jesus had been reminding his disciples that he would die. He had led them to Jerusalem for that very purpose. He has been glorying in the sacrifice of his death at the Last Supper. And so there's no indication of anything but readiness that Jesus had in facing death. Let's look in verse 39. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. The word cup is interesting. It's found numerous times in the Bible, and it's always in reference to God's wrath or his judgment. Jesus will take upon himself the sins of the world. The Bible says he who knew no sin would be made sin for us. That God's judgment... The Father's judgment would be placed upon Jesus where he would be separated from the Godhead 
during the crucifixion. That's why Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' greatest distress was not death. His dread was separation and alienation from the Father. He was going to experience all of our sins. His soul was repulsed at the prospect of being disconnected from the Godhead. He had never known sin. He had never been apart from God, ever. And what he was saying was, Dad, please spare me this cup. I have no desire to be cut off from you. I have no wish to experience your wrath and your judgment placed upon me. But it is at Gethsemane that we learn a very important truth from Jesus. That faithfulness at Gethsemane requires selflessness. Let me say that again. Faithfulness at Gethsemane requires selflessness. Let's look in verse 39. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken away from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. You know, there's a Bible study that I did the other day on Mark chapter 14 with some of our college guys. And um, the question was asked, did Jesus always have things go his way when he was here on this earth? And it actually kind of divided the group where some said, well, yes, he was God. By very definition, everything went his way. He's sovereign. Or we had some say, well, no, because Jesus in his humanity didn't have things go his way. And you know what the conclusion we came up with was? That that is the wrong question. Because we see that Jesus wasn't here on earth to do things his way, only the Father's way. You see, Jesus' perspective from the moment he entered earth was completely selfless. And that is why Jesus was completely faithful in everything that he did. Think of the disciples. They fell away. They ran. They denied him. They had a way that they expected Jesus' kingdom and Jesus to play out. That when it didn't happen according to their ideas, they were disillusioned. In short, they focused on self. And isn't that what we do as Jesus' disciples? We're tempted to have our ideas of success and happiness come from the results of following Jesus. And we may actually have self-actualizing agendas for our Christian life. But what happens when our ideas of happiness, my will, my plans, my success, doesn't line up with God's will for our lives? Do we fall away? Do we run and scatter? Do we deny Jesus? Do we fail? You know, I had a realization about myself. Let me share this with you. I am the kindest, sweetest, politest. Do you agree with me? I am the most caring, most loving, most generous, most magnanimous man on the face of the earth when things go my way, right? I never get angry when I hit all my shots playing basketball. I've never gotten angry with that. I've never become combative on the road when I catch all the green lights, when everybody yields to me. I'm such a sweetheart. I really am when people do what I tell them to do, right? I'm loving when people are good to me. I'm generous when I have a lot of money. I'm such a great Christian when everything goes my way. But then God places Gethsemanes into my life to squeeze me, to crush my dreams, and even the pressure in my life so that I am left realizing what kind of Christian I really am. And I'm left with realizing that it's either my way or it's God's way. And, you know, I'm left with God's will and his agenda. You know, it's interesting, uh, and I want to close with this hymn. There was a hymn written that speaks so beautifully uh, to this situation. Uh, it goes like this. 
Oh, the bitter pain and sorrow that a time could ever be. When I proudly said to Jesus, all of self and none of thee. Yet he found me. I beheld him bleeding on that accursed tree. And my wistful heart said faintly, some of self and some of thee. Day by day, his tender mercy, healing, helping, full and free, brought me lower as I whispered, less of self and more of thee. Higher than the highest heaven, deeper than the deepest sea, Lord, your love at last has conquered none of self and all of thee. You see, the journey of a Christian is the journey of all of self and none of thee changing to none of self and all of thee. And so here's my question as we prepare our time. Will you say, not my will, but yours be done? Will you repent of self-confidence, self-centeredness, selfishness? And will you commit to God's plan, none of self and all of thee? We're going to call the worship team up. Let's take this time and let's search our hearts.